Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week's portion, Parasha, is entitled Yitro. It is one of the few portions that is uh, called by the name of an individual. Interestingly enough, Yitro, whose name is uh, appended to this portion, is not even a member of the Israelite covenant. Let me give you an overview of this week's parasha. It begins in chapter 18 of Exodus and concludes with chapter 20, verse 23. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, hears of the great miracles which God performed for the people of Israel and comes from Midian to the Israelites' camp, bringing with him Moses' wife, Tzipporah, who happens to be Jethro's daughter, and the two sons that Tzipporah has bore to Moses. Jethro advises Moses to appoint a hierarchy of magistrate and judges to assist him in the task of governing and administering justice to the people of Israel. Following this, the children of Israel camp opposite Mount Sinai, where they are told that God has chosen them to be his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Mamlechet Kohanim va'am Kadosh. The people responded by proclaiming, All that God has spoken, we shall do. On the sixth day of the third month, seven weeks after the Exodus, the entire nation of Israel assembles at the foot of Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah. God descends on the mountain amidst thunder, lightning, billows of smoke, and the blast of the shofar, and summons Moses to ascend. From there, God proclaims the Ten Commandments, commanding the people of Israel to believe in God, to have no other gods besides Elohim, not to take God's name in vain, to keep the Shabbat, honor their parents, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to bear false witness or covet another's property. The people cry out to Moses that the revelation is too intense for them to bear, begging him to receive the Torah from God and convey it to them. It is, as you can imagine, a Torah portion with great meaning and just asking to be discussed and, as they say, unpacked to find both the obvious and the hidden meaning. With me this morning to discuss Parashat Yitro is Rabbi Paul Gollum, who is the senior scholar of Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York. 
Rabbi Gollum was the senior rabbi of Vassar Temple from 2000 to 2015, at which point he retired. During his career, he served as director of Hillel Foundations at at Ohio State University. I think it's usually called the Ohio State University and the University of Buffalo. In addition, prior to uh, going to Poughkeepsie, New York and Vassar Temple, Rabbi Gollum served as an associate rabbi and a congregation in Illinois, and he was a senior rabbi of a congregation in Connecticut. His Canadian connection is quite deep. For four years, 1996 to 2000, he served as director of the Canadian Council for Liberal Judaism, associated with the North American organization known then as the Union for Reform Judaism. And in addition, he was the leader of the Center for Liberal Jewish Learning, known as the Kolel. Rabbi Gollum is an active educator, even in his retirement, has published articles in numerous journals, and the opportunity to speak with you this morning about Parashah Yitro is part and parcel of his commitment to teach the word of the Jewish people. Rabbi Gollum, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Ah, well, well deserved. You've had a wonderful career, and I think you certainly are um, not only uh, somebody that I respect, but our listeners who have heard you speak about Torah portions uh, certainly have learned of your erudition. I want to begin with a very troubling uh, verse. It occurs right at the beginning of our parasha. I'm going to read it for our uh, listeners and then ask you to respond. Vishma Yitro Kohen Midian, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, Chotain Moshe, uh, and Moses' uh, father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out from Egypt. So I was um, interested in how you have taught that opening section, the Yitro Yishma. Uh, did he hear God directly, or did he simply hear it uh, on the radio? Uh, how do you understand this notion of Jethro hearing all that God had done for Moses? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely question. Uh, in general, um, I, I have taken it as uh, simply the fact that the uh, the Sinai wilderness was not all that empty, and that uh, word would get around, and it would particularly get around to a, a priest of Midian uh, for whom uh, 
uh, as in the position of being a priest uh, and the expectation of the Midianites themselves, he would he should be a person who knows what's going on, uh, and so it would not it would not be uh, completely uh, beyond speculation to, to suggest that. Uh, uh, the the noise, the uproar of a of basically a slave revolt and an escape from Egypt uh, would reach uh, would reach uh, Jethro's ears, um, and um, that's in general the way in which I've taken it. My tendency, as I think you know, is uh, to tend to naturalize the text. Um, I don't I don't look for magical or spiritual. Uh, uh, explanations for what the text is saying. I right. usually look for what's the most natural way of understanding things. Good. And I like that word natural as opposed to simple or literal. So following up on that, at the end of um, the verses relating to this interaction between Moses and Yitro, uh, it says that Moses described for Yitro uh, everything that had taken place and that God had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. It's not clear to me why this needs to be done if uh, six verses earlier it indicates that Jethro had already heard all of this. And then it reads in verse 9, and Jethro rejoiced over all the kindness that the Lord had shown Israel when he delivered him from the Egyptians. And verse 10, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from Egypt and from the Egyptians and who delivered from under the hand of Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, uh, and it's the word uh, Adonai, uh, is greater than all gods, Elohim, by the very result of the schemes. And he offered a burnt offering for Adonai. It seems that at the end of that interaction, Jethro has more than just a passing knowledge of Adonai, yud heh vav and seems to um, have a more in-depth relationship with that Israelite deity than one would have thought um, indicated by the more natural understanding of the beginning of verse eight, chapter 18. I guess that's a question. N- namely, how do you understand the end of it? Is it a transition? Um, is it just a continuation? Um, uh, well, a, a couple of things might come to mind is that uh, listening to, listening to his son-in-law Jethro is now getting a, a a somewhat different side of the story. I mean, after all, he got he, if if I'm I'm putting this into a context, he gets reports of the slave revolt. He gets reports that his his son-in-law, that ne'er-do-well son-in-law, that he never thought would amount to anything. Actually, is leading this whole bunch of uh, people out of out of Egypt, um, um, right under the nose uh, of the Egyptians, and indeed, in some fashion, even uh, squashing the Egyptian army. 
it, it, you know, he hears about this. And finally, he has the opportunity to confront his son-in-law and say, so what happened? It's the opportunity to hear an eyewitness uh, rather than simply the second, third, fourth-hand reports uh, that come to him. I think what's particularly interesting is, as you mentioned, he then in, in verse 10 of the text actually confers blessing upon uh, or, 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 or extends praise to Moses' God. Um, now, there's, there's no, though there are Jewish traditions that will suggest that at that point Jethro converted and became a member of the covenant, uh, the text is, it, it, it doesn't want to state that outright. And it is possible for us to, uh, to imagine that Jethro continues to be a, a Midianite uh, priest in good standing, but nonetheless uh, acknowledges, uh, a, uh, acknowledges uh, Moses and the Israelites' God, um, he might be able to do that because he's polytheistic and he has no trouble with multiple gods. Uh, he, he even acknowledges that this is a rather powerful God. Um, the, it, it's interesting to see how one Jewish interpretation in Midrash uh, treats that, saying, especially when you look at the previous chapter, chapter 17 from last week, you see that the Israelites are complaining an awful lot. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. Uh, it's hot. It's dusty. Uh, why in heaven's name are they in the middle of the wilderness rather than back in Egypt, which they were somehow, even though it was an oppressive experience, they're already missing, uh, all of which suggests a certain sort of a doubt uh, in the God that has just freed them. And, and so the Midrash uh, suggests when you hear it from an outsider, that, that's like a confirmation. And maybe this is a God you, the Israelites, should listen to. Um, and that's the way in which the, the Midrash deals with it, which I think is really rather clever. I think it's very clever, but I want to ask you um, something. And if you can answer it from the Prashat, I'd be thrilled. And if not... Um, I've always been struck by the notion that the text is very consistent in telling us that Jethro was a priest of the Midians. Why do we have to know that? Why can't he simply um, be a shepherd um, and yeah. have daughters that uh, Moses, uh, saves at the well, the, you know, the narrative motif, which we read about, uh, with Eliezer, the servant of Abraham and with Jacob again. Uh, so finding a wife at the well is a pretty well known established motif. So why does he have to be a priest of Midian and does his title change the nature of his acknowledgement of the Jewish uh, deity? Uh, it's, that's useful. Um, I, I'm going to give something of a, uh, how would I put it, a literary structural answer, um, because I think that, that one of the things that's going on here is um, with this 
with the uh, exodus from Egypt, with the crossing of the sea, uh, immediately preceding the uh, the chapter we we're looking at right now, um, we have the birth of the Israelite people. Well, this is the second time in which we've had the birth of the Israelite people. The first time we had it was with Abraham. And that one of the things that happens with Abraham is his encounter with the uh, the priest of, of Shalem, Melchizedek. Uh, I think it's chapter 15, chapter 16 of... Uh, of, of Genesis. Uh, chapter 15 of Genesis. Right. This seems to be structurally a parallel. Right? It's a, ah. it's a, if, it, if you did it the first time, let's, let's give it to you the second time. That we're going to have a priest outside of the covenant nonetheless acknowledge the covenant uh, and acknowledge the power of God. Um, and, and that then gets back to the, the Midrashic insight. It says that sometimes you don't believe things until somebody else who, who is otherwise disinterested says it to you. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it, it, uh, it, it's one of those situations where somebody who's really close to you, like your wife or your children, will extend to you some praise, uh, and you'll be very happy for it. But after all, they're your wife, they're your, you know, you're the spouse, they're your, your, your child. But when you hear it from somebody else, unrelated, that counts, you know? And, and that, that seems to be what's operating here. And it looks like it's recapitulation. It's the retelling of the, uh, of that initial Abraham story. Well, I think that's great. That, and, and I think it calls to mind, as I alluded to before, the repetition of motifs in, uh, Genesis and the early sections of Exodus. And perhaps you're right that making the Midian Jethro, a Midianite priest, gives greater weight to his acknowledgement uh, of the power of the eternal. Um, and because he's a priest, he uh, ostensibly has his own gods to which he's uh, affiliate with whom he's affiliated. And even though he has his own gods, he is uh, um, able to acknowledge the power of the Israelites' God. It's a really interesting way to introduce uh, what will become in chapter 20, and that is the Aserita Debrot, the Ten Commandments, which states... There's issues here about numbering, and I don't want to enter into the conversation, but it says, you shall have no other gods besides me, which sometimes is interpreted or translated as you shall have no other gods. Um, but clearly the Hebrew would be on the side of Jethro, who has his own set of gods, um, and kind of an allusion to a warning to the Israelites, you may meet people like Jethro, um, and they may have gods, but your God is not their God. Um, So let's go back and continue the chronology. Having spent some time in chapter 18 and having Moses learn from Jethro, 
about how to uh, organize this motley crew who's left Egypt. We turn to chapter 19, which is in the introduction to the Revelation. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land, on that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Um, And we have this um, introduction. God says to him from the mountains, Thou, you shall say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and meet my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. So let's start there. What does treasured possession mean? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it, it's a uh, an introduction to this notion of of uh, covenant um, th- that this is going to be a, a close pact uh, between God and a people. Um, I, I personally put this into a uh, into a, 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 a the larger context. Um, God starts with with Adam. And it looks like, okay, here's going to be the covenant. It's going to be God and Adam. Uh, and yet that falls apart principally over the eating of the fruit in the garden. Uh, so God is going to start again, uh, uh, especially when it looks like humankind has really gone off the rails. You have the flood. We're going to start over again. The covenant now is going to be with Noah. Uh, but Noah just goes out and gets drunk, right? So God says, okay, I'm not going to make a covenant with all of universal humankind, which would have been, it would have been implied in Adam and would have been implied again in Noah as the sole survivor of the flood. What I'm going to do is uh, go in the reverse order. Rather than starting with everyone, I'm just going to start with a single family. And so, finds Abraham, finds Abraham worthy, doesn't find Abraham's son Ishmael as worthy, but but it, it works with Isaac, doesn't work with Isaac's son Esau, but it does work with Jacob, and then lo and behold, it works with all of Jacob's children, and now you've got, starting with, you know, an, an individual couple, Abraham and Sarah, you, you now got a clan. And the clan is the, ultimately becomes a people. Um, and in essence, God is going to stick with this people. Uh, and we already get the feeling from chapter 17, as I've, I've alluded, that God is going to stick with this people thick or thin. They're going to be stubborn. They're going to be uh, contrary. They're, they're going to show weakness in faith every once in a while. Um, but Lo and behold, they're constantly going to be able to show promise, uh, and that's going to be good enough. And and that's what I think is uh, implied here. We're going we're going to start with a with a, a people, create that covenant, and then allow that uh, covenant to uh, expand more universally. So, and, I, and I, I, yeah, go ahead. History, it works. I'm just saying from the point of view of world history, it works. Uh, while Jews ch- 
Jews over over the millennia to remain Jews uh, and to and to re- maintain a certain sort of a, of a relationship with their past uh, and with with a particular sort of a people. The concept of the covenant, the concept of the belief in the one God, does indeed become pretty much universal. It is propagated in in, in Christianity and Islam. I think all of that is really insightful. But the phrase that has stood out in some juxtaposition to this covenantal uh, clarity is the notion of treasured people. Ha'item li segula mikol ha'amim. You are my treasured possession among all people. And you and I might easily interpret that to mean, well, you're the people who've accepted the covenant. And that places you in a special uh, relationship. And that works well if um, God um, is one of a pantheon of gods. But when we move to the more monotheistic sense that there is one universal, omniscient, and omnipotent God, when we call one people uh, treasured, that appears to suggest that others are not, which has led to the claim of chosenness, which has, as you well know, not been a burden easily borne by the Jewish people throughout history. So I'm wondering... Go choose someone else. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please choose somebody else. So this notion of choosing that seems to emerge here as we get ready to stand at Sinai and as we get ready to follow your very uh, insightful uh, progression from a more personal covenant to a more corporate communal covenant. Has this been a problem? And how do we respond to challenges like that? Uh, Yeah, uh, it's, it it obviously continues to be a problem. Uh, It's, um, but it's a problem that was already expressed within the, within the biblical canon uh, specifically the book of Amos. Um, and, and it's important because what Amos does uh, at one point is, uh, uh, as a prophet uh, that turns to the Israelites, in this case, the, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, uh, and says, okay, so you think you're special. You think that, that if, you know, after all, God took you out of Egypt. And specifically what he says, it's almost like a reference to the passage we're reading today. Uh, and, uh, but he says, God, God did special things to other peoples as well. Um, that the it's not as the the issue. It's important to, for I think for Jews to understand that it's not a zero sum game. That God choosing Israel, uh, even though we 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 say in our in our prayers among all the peoples. Well, that's true. At at some point. Uh, it, 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 we, we were chosen among all the peoples, but, but it's not an, ex, an exclusive choosing. Uh, each one finds a path 
uh, I, I think, uh, to the divine. Um, and, uh, what we, what we are constantly negotiating, which is a constant, ongoing, uh, fundamentally human tension, uh, is between each of our particular, particularities, the particularity that I can talk about as, you know, the classic notion, there's only me, uh, the old joke, be yourself because everyone else is taken, uh, and, and, and being part of a collective, a universality. I think, uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank Rabbi Paul Gollum, senior scholar from uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, Temple Vassar in Poughkeepsie, New York, for sharing with us great insight into this powerful portion. We haven't even had the time to look at the Aserata de Brot. Um, for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good morning. Yeah.